What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. I am sitting here in windy Foster City today, but sunny, which is a, a nice respite from all the rain, with Dr. C.K. Andrade. Welcome. Good morning. Good to be here. Well, it's good to have you. And uh, we were joking before we get started that we've been trying to make this happen for almost four months. We met at a Techonomy event. You sat on a panel with David Kirkpatrick and a couple of other investors. And I was intrigued by your story. And we got talking that night. And I said, you know what? I've got to have you on the podcast show. So I'm excited that we finally get to do this. And we finally coordinated cities after all this time. Uh, I like to start with sort of people's backgrounds, and you have an interesting background, starting with your education. Um, You spent time at the University of Toronto, uh, SFSU, and Stanford, so a broad array across the entire country. Um, Walk us through that journey a little bit. Yes. So, you know, one of the things for me is just when you wake up and realize that you've got post-secondary education in more than six fields. So my father was a Renaissance man. It was, and he really showed me that you can see the world through multiple lenses. So he was a lawyer who had engineering patents. And I realized that I was a multidisciplinary thinker before they had multidisciplinary programs. And so I collect uh, degrees and advanced certifications in different fields as I get to problems that need a broader perspective. So it all started way at the beginning with physical therapy school. I will admit, physical therapy school was a rebellion because I finished high school when I was 15. And when we moved to Canada, I had to repeat a grade, recognizing credentials, but I was still really young. I was accepted into McGill. I wanted to go there. That was my dream. And my parents said I was too young. So as a rebellion, I picked up the catalog and I picked a subject that was the furthest from home. I got into physical therapy school and it was narrow. When you're in any one discipline, it's narrow. Specialization is important. But in physical therapy school, they recognized really early that I was never going to be a physical therapist. Although the irony is I still practice. I became a researcher. I became interested in research. And the chair of that department actually nominated me for a research fellowship in biomedical engineering because I like to build things. Biomedical engineering actually opened my eyes to a different way of seeing the world. But at the time, they were not really ready for women of color in engineering. And they sort of counseled me that maybe psychology would be a more comfortable place. And I was working with kids with terminal illnesses. And it made sense for me. I thought all my kids were dying. It was, I felt unprepared. So I became a psychotherapist. And Two-thirds of the way through that, I started recognizing that it didn't give me the statistical background to be a researcher. But I had that math phobia thing happening, and I cracked the being good at math nut and studied measurement and evaluation, which is obscure, how to measure things. And I learned to code on bed rest and then went back to school as an engineering manager to actually become more rigorous in my understanding of development. And then a couple years ago, I woke up and realized that I didn't really understand business. So I went to Stanford to study business in their entrepreneurship and innovation certificate. I'm finally at a place where I have enough disciplines under my belt to answer the questions in the way that I want to for this year. Well, you partially answered my next question. So first of all, you probably had more careers you know, at your young age than most people over their entire lives. And 
quite across a quite array of um, of areas and disciplines. Uh, you are in a product management role, and I think you tipped your hand to that by saying, "I wanted to understand business more." Certainly, that's a way to do that. Uh, expound on that a little bit as you sort of made your way into becoming, you know, in your current role, the um, director of product management for the Philips Health Suite digital platform. So, product management for me comes back to that whole notion of wanting to see things end to end, of being able to have that big picture. So when I switched careers into uh, tech, that was you know the hungry Silicon Valley startup days, I started at the bottom as a software project manager, and then I became an engineering manager. And one of the things that I realized is I was really, really interested in that intersection between the market needs this, and we build that, and then we may launch something into the field. And product management actually gives you a vantage point where you're the voice of the customer, you really under, have to understand what people want, where the market's going, not only present, but future. At the same time, I love the nuts and bolts of writing the requirements, being part of building the spec, prioritizing bugs, and then actually shaping it, and sort of shepherding it all the way through until you birth it into the world. And then it never ends. Your relationship with a product is actually ongoing until it sunsets. And even when it sunsets, you've got to ask yourself that question of, oh, how do, how do we do? Did it end for not so good reasons, or was this a, a peaceful, well-deserved ending? Well, I like how intentional your thinking is, because I think a lot of people that get into product management probably do so a little bit more haphazardly. We will talk more about what you're doing in your day job um, at uh, Philips for the Health Suite platform. In between, though, I do want to talk about another career that you have, which is as an associate clinical professor and course instructor, you do this in your spare time. Um, you know, what itch does that scratch and what does that entail? Wow. Actually, that's one of the joys of my life. So my whole dream, what fueled me through undergrad and grad school was becoming a professor. And my first, you'd say, like official, you know, post PhD job was tenure track professor teaching statistics and research methods, and running a master's program. And we were actually new immigrants to the US at the time. And it was that whole thing of how do we get green cards? How do we stay in the country? And we thought a transition from Canada to the US was simple, but it isn't. And so we had a really tough decision to make, and I actually left my tenure track job to be able to, to move into a physical therapy job to get a green card, because my Husband at the time was a Silicon Valley engineer. They cannot justify that there's no one else that can do that job. But I always continued teaching. So even though for me, academe wasn't full-time, wasn't quite the place and the circumstances didn't allow it, I've actually continued to teach throughout my career. So the fun part is that I get to partner. So I teach in the at UCSF, the University of California, San Francisco, and San Francisco State, there's a joint program. Uh, I have been able to develop new courses in multiple areas. We did the case reporting course with my colleague, uh, Dr. Linda Wanick. I taught teaching and learning. And then two years ago, I started a course in digital health, teaching clinicians about digital health. So I love teaching. And I started when I was 10 and will always have teaching in some form in my life. Well, it's a great way to really stretch your mind. And I remember um, I teach occasionally at like San Jose State and, and Syracuse and others. 
that I was at Georgetown in grad school. And the first time we had to lead a class and I thought, wow, this actually could be really fun. Now, it doesn't pay as well as probably the jobs we have as our day jobs, but it really is very fulfilling and to be able to give back in a, in a meaningful way, I think is just such a great opportunity to be able to do that. And don't you love it when you see that moment where the light bulb goes off? I mean, for me, that's the buzz right? You'll be explaining something and there'll be all these faces and then you see it's like a wave effect. And then finally, it's like they get it. And also, I get a ton from my students. So I work on their thesis papers, their culminating experiences and their ideas and actually working with people to shape ideas is a gift. Well, and the thing that I've been amazed at too is, um, you know, I went to school 25 plus years ago is just to see some of the skills that kids in school have today that, you know, even my kids in high school that they didn't have, you know, we didn't have back then. And so I agree the light bulb moment is amazing. But also to say, how is it that you've come so far and you understand so much? And, you know, the kids coming out of college now, they're so poised and many of them speak so well. And anyway, I'm envious of that. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about your current role. And it is the director of product management for the Hellups, the Phillips Health Suite. Sorry, that's <laughs> combining too many words. Um, we've talked a little bit about your product management piece, but let's talk more about the platform. I think the platform is something that a lot of people are looking for, right? This connectivity, um, the cloud component, and then the services that wrap around it for all of these connected devices. I think one of the things for me is I'm really lucky. I, I love my job. It's, do you know when you, someone hands you your dream job and you're like, yes, I can do this. HealthSuite Digital Platform actually came out of Philip's vision for how we could harness the cloud for healthcare as well as consumers. So Philips has got a very broad reach, right? We've been entrenched in the consumer market forever, and we've also have a long legacy in healthcare. And so the idea of building a center for cloud expertise within Philips for Philips and its partners. And so the HealthSuite platform is built to be able to support consumer propositions, but also the really rigorous demands of healthcare propositions. And that is, I think, part of our sweet spot. So we've taken the, the core components of a cloud platform, and I'll go into those, but the key part for us, the value add, is that wrapper we've put around it. So security, looking at all the security controls, the security services, the information uh, security management system, being able to create healthcare compliant level security. Then all the regulatory pieces. So Philips has played in this regulatory space for decades. And so being able to understand all of the, what you need for the quality management system, being able to put in the attestations, have all the audits, all the certifications that you need to for privacy, security, and regulatory is a key piece. And you think, well, why are you just talking about all of these regulatory things? What about the cloud? Well, I think one of the things that people are nervous about is putting health data and any private data into the cloud. And this for us was a big piece we paid attention to. And then we built the core modules that you would need to build something that is meaningful and important. Hosting, so that we, we've got the host module. Then we have authorize, the identity and access management. And then we have connect, because you want to start connecting devices and managing devices remotely. And then after that, people want to be able to ingest data. So we have share, which is the integration engine to exchange HL7 style data. Now you've connected devices and electronic health records and other records you want to put the data somewhere. So we have the whole suite of store services to put them into. 
And then once you have all that data, you want to be able to analyze it. And so then the next set of capabilities, the other platform services, analyze. So you can see we've built all of these technical Lego blocks that you need, building consumer application or healthcare, and then put that really good regulatory security wrapper around it. Do we have time to talk about any of the things that we're doing on the platform? Like Absolutely. And, and actually, let's let's preempt that and then let's get into that. I think part of how you got into this, you have a video, I believe I saw it on LinkedIn, uh, your personal story about how your current role came to be. So I'd love to sort of insert that because that was pretty neat. And then we can talk about uh, you bet. the nuts and, 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 and And that definitely is a, you know, bring your Kleenex moment. Um, if you saw the ultrasound video, so for folks that are listening, the ultrasound video is about the birth of my son, who was a miscarriage. And so for me, an ultrasound saved my son's life. It was that really difficult time where we finally, you know, I was pregnant, we were really celebrating and then getting that news about the miscarriage, but then quite by chance, a few weeks later, ending up in Emerge with a resident who asked to do an ultrasound and they find this little heartbeat on the way out. And at the time, it was, for me, we're just like, wow, because we actually had mourned losing this baby, and there was a heartbeat. And one of the docs said, oh, you're not quite finished yet. This will be over in about 12 hours. And if you wait three months, you can try again. Because apparently, early pregnancies, first pregnancies are often miscarriages. It's common, but still devastating. And I thought, why is that the only option? Why isn't there the option to actually try to keep that little heartbeat alive? And I said, well, can we save that baby? And they, everyone just kind of looked at me. There was that, you know, that very silent. Uh, like, oh, you know, you're too naive to understand what's going on here. Exactly. But they didn't know me. So I, I, I'm big on the perseverance. And so we shopped around until we would find a, an OB that would work with us. And it was, it's about all the drugs and bed rest and doing everything to rebuild the placenta and keep him alive. But that experience, so first of all, that technology experience of, we always think of technology as out there and impersonal, and then this brought it home. And it was, wow, I've been saved by technology. My son's alive. And yet, throughout that whole pregnancy, I was alone an hour from my hospital, our family was 3,600 miles away and with all the side effects and no one was monitoring me. I had no one to communicate with. And I lay there and thought, someone needs to do something about this. And it really, that became a driving force for me. I want the next people coming along to have a better experience when they're at home sick and need to be monitored. And that started that seed about remote patient monitoring and wanting to be part of that technology. And then, I think the enabler was being married to a Silicon Valley engineer. Well, when he found out I was on bed rest, he said, well, sweetie, you're going to have time on your hands. You could learn to code. And so I learned to code while I was on bed rest. And that prompted me to, to switch careers while I was on bed rest. Most people watch TV or knit or you know, listen <laughs> or to chocolates. podcasts. Of course, leave it to you to learn how to code. Um, okay, now let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of the uh, actual platform. You'd want to get into some of the details. And that actually is a really nice segue because working on HealthSuite Digital Platform actually was part of a dream. So my dream was how do I build systems that allow you to support people who are 
not in a doctor's office or within reach of a healthcare provider. And so I had actually worked on a number of platforms before moving to Philips. And then with HealthSuite, it was actually being in a company that had the reach, consumer space, had the healthcare expertise, had the technical expertise. They did that pivot to being a health technology company, and we could build it. So that train actually goes into some of the propositions that we, we built. So at HIMSS recently, it was really exciting for me because of what we were doing with two partners of things that I believe in, so Ipsomed. Ipsomed is taking traditional injection devices and creating a connected device. So the injection device you'd use, for example, to deliver insulin. And so often that is fraught with the, well, I don't know um, how much the dose I'm tasting. I mean, I look at even my tracking my mother, how much she's taking, so a little paper chart. But they've made that a connected device with Smart Palette, and then they've used our Health Suite digital platforms, IoT and device management. And what they do is they actually provide device management and the device data to healthcare or pharma or research, and they can build their own apps on top of that. So, so many times we can actually enable someone to help support other people's technology. And that's a nice model where you're not forced to use one app or one approach, you build your own on top of what Ipsomed is doing. And then today is National Oral Health Day. Sonicare Toothbrush is one of the devices that's connected on our platform. So you can see it's that range from consumer all the way through the healthcare. And I think that's what drives me. That's what's exciting at work. I get to see really amazing things. It's a very lucky place to be. Well, it sounds like it. <clears throat> and I just got done uh, being at South by Southwest Interactive mm -hmm. for three days and having some of the smartest people, many of which I've interviewed before, like Mona Siddiqui, who's the chief data officer for the Department of Health and Human Services, and Rasu Shrestha, who's you know an amazing doctor, speaker, and futurist, pragmatic futurist, he said. Yes. And um, you know, just listening to some of the the art of the possible coming over the next few years is is incredible. And to that, with that segue, um, you are a person that has spent a lot of time in a lot of different spaces. So I love to get the perspective of someone like you that has spent so much time thinking about it and really knowing the technical all the way through that empathetic element and really understanding the patient deeply. What do you see happening in the future of healthcare over the next five and then maybe 10 years? You know, I think when we start answering that question, we automatically start thinking about the technology. So I start thinking, well, wow, you know, 5G and voice will be everywhere. And for folks who don't have big data, there'll be small, meaningful analysis of small data. But then we've got quantum computing coming along that allow us to do parallel processing of massive amounts of complex data. And then I thought, whoa, hang on a second, but that's not really what it's about. So there are two areas for me that are always top of mind. First of all, health parity. It, I see a lot of really cool, really expensive things being built, and that sits side by side with the fact that in the US, the, the, the largest contributor to your health status is your zip code, right? And so we can have smart cities and we can have smart hospitals, and yet at the same time, we have folks that actually are dying early of very preventable diseases and are, are lacking basic care. 
And so I started thinking about it from that lens. So where would healthcare be in five years? I would hope that even 10, can we just start harnessing technology to change health parity? And being able to use the technology, for example, increasing access to health information, being able to get care to people who don't have the, the cool hospital in their neighborhood, being able to get care to people who can't automatically even go to the grocery store and buy healthy food. I mean, there are a lot of things that we take for given every single day that are, for many people, a struggle. So I was in Toronto recently during a snowstorm, and there was a sign that was up. Food, warmth, shelter. Some people will only be able to choose one tonight. And so I think for me, that was the first piece. And then how do we not just make technology, but how do we make it culturally appropriate? Open to have gender awareness that your biometric standards aren't male or female. How do you do more than just translate it to a different language, but actually understand the, the culture it's going into? So yeah, I'm not sure what you think about that, but for me, that drives how do we use all that cool technology that's gonna be around. So you know what I think about that is I loved you before and I loved you even more after that answer because that's such a deep, you know, but empathetic answer. It really speaks to your technologist meets physician, you know, doctor. Um, so definitely one of the more outside the box answers. So I really appreciate that. And I did talk, this is probably about a year ago, Karen Ignani, who is the CEO of Gotham Health, uh, and they talked about sort of bringing health to some of their underserved populations and they had just done a partnership can't remember the company. Um, it's an alphabet company, part of Google. And it was fascinating in terms of what they're doing. So I like that people are starting to really think about that parody. I like the, you know, being sort of oblivious to down to also serving correctly the different populations and the different needs, but doing it because it's needed, not because it's, you know, how you artificially line people up according to gender or, you know, uh, ethnicity or wherever it is. You obviously work for a company that does some amazing things, but as someone that's really spent a lot of time in the space thinking and working with a lot of these partner, right? So you just mentioned one uh, a minute ago. Uh, what other companies or organizations do you feel like are truly innovating in the space? So my first pick is actually a combination because I think in each in themselves, I don't know that they're doing things that are phenomenal, but together they're doing something that I think is going to improve access to care, because that's another big piece for me. There was that recent announcement of Lyft and Solve Care, where you can now use a care wallet that they're, they've got built on the medical block, blockchain platform to be able to pay for, uh, pay for and schedule Lyft rides that will take you to uh, medical appointments. And that, with that model in mind, they're saying, well, they could open it up and have third party paying for rides so that your insurance could pay for you to get to a doctor's appointment. Because you realize in so many cases, people not getting care for the simple barrier that they can't get there. So that was one of, of my picks because it's got an infrastructure that will support social justice if we decide to use it that way. Well, I like that because I just did a panel at South by and part of it was this whole concept of patient advocacy and how can we sort of apply marketing better to that. And one of the things we, we had a patient advocate, we had a woman from the PKD foundation and we had a woman representing the advocacy side of Otsuka, uh, Mary Michael. And we talked one of the segments we talked about is just these dumb little things 
like transportation, like the time of day that if you're getting into a clinical trial that just isn't really um, helpful for people. Billing, right? The fact that sometimes it's like the $200 that doesn't get picked up that people end up getting you know, referred to the debt collectors and it ruins their credit. So all these dumb little things that can be, I don't want to say easily solved, but more easily addressed through some of these partnerships. And certainly I know Uber and Lyft are doing amazing things to really help try to address that transportation component. And I think it. sometimes it's that the irony is it's, they're not hard to solve. It's just not sexy enough for people to. That's exactly it. And that was where, so, you know, one of our folks from Cedar, who's doing the billing component, they're looking at something that really is not sexy at all, right? Or Uber and Lyft. It's like taking someone that's sick or in need of care to the hospital, like, doesn't really seem like that's like, you know, Uber Eats seems a lot sexier than this, except this is dramatically changing, you know, the health of the population and really helping people that can't get to appointments you know, do what they need to do, so. So the, my other one is in the realm of uh, way cool. Uh, Prelis Biologics, they're local, they're, they're, they're Bay Area. So what they do is high, high resolution 3D printing of biocompatible organs. So getting close to being able to 3D print an organ that you could actually transplant. And for me, that was just, Mind-blowing, because a lot of different levels. So first of all, how many people, I, one of my early caseloads was working with kids who were having liver transplants. And it's really sad when you've got a kid who's just uh, really deteriorated because they've been waiting to get a liver. So there's that whole piece of the lives that we can save, because not everyone checks that box in their donor card. Then you've got all the tr human trafficking for organs that's going on underneath. So something like this, for me, could solve problems at multiple levels. And yes, there, there's this whole ethical level we've really got to sort out well. So there are parts that make me nervous, but this was one that made me pause. Well, it sounds amazing. And I know because I have a coworker whose brother is in a situation where he's waiting for a liver transplant. And the problem is, and this speaks to a more macro trend, they essentially wait until you're about to die before you're eligible to be able to get it. And if you think about this trend, and you mentioned my past guest, um, um, Shveta uh, Vikram, talking about this whole wellness and health you know, movement where it's instead of like, let's focus on treating the ill, let's like prevent the illness so that we don't ever have to get there so you don't do all this damage to the body, right? So I love the fact that they're solving it. And yes, there are ethical dilemmas, uh, but I'd like to think that there are good people in the world like you who are helping to make sure that you know we have the right things in place to be able to make sure that they don't get exactly some of those stop guards that make us pause and think before we right. go right. ahead right well on that note we're going to shift gears a little bit to something a little more playful right and i like to ask questions that are more personal to the guest uh and the first one i always like to find out about is you know tell us something about yourself that people might not know that you're willing to share i love children and when I'm not traveling, and as we found out, we both travel a ton. When I'm not traveling, I treat babies with uh, congenital conditions in their homes. Wow, because you needed one more job than top. <laughs> but this for me, and it's funny because it, it's, it's one of those things that's not a job, it's a joy. So what I do is, and this goes back to the irony of physical therapy school, which was the one profession I thought I would never be in. But I was a pediatric physical therapist for eons. And so going into the home for newborns, they're all under six months, 
who have, and the ones I do that are right now that are very easy will go in with torticollis or plagiocephaly. So I'm doing more orthopedic than neuro right now because I've limited time. But you're in a home with new parents who have an, a newborn who has something wrong and they are lost. And so it is that ability to, I, I bring a sense of calm and comfort while imparting a lot of really critical healthcare information. But it's so low, low tech, it's all hands on. So I'm sitting there in that space often wondering, huh, could we actually inject a little bit of technology that would give the, the families continuity, the caregivers continuity of information? Because you'll see them, give them a program, come back, and in the meantime, you've been a parent, you've got three kids, you sit there going like, when are you coming back? Because I don't know what to do. So it's ultimately low tech and perso personal and hands on, but I do find myself every once in a while thinking, how can I make this a little bit better? But I love it, the babies are adorable. Well, they are adorable and I, just can tell the first time I met you that aura around you of just you make people around you feel comfortable and you have just a gentle, but you know, sort of, um, what's the right word? Firm enough where people feel like this this person's got it, right? They're in control and they know what they're doing and that's a nice combination, right? Oh, so, you're making me blush. Well, it's true. Um, and I don't say that to everybody I interview. I like a lot of the people I interview, not everybody that I interview. Um, the, the next question, which you said is actually the hardest, or one of the hardest on this list, which is funny given the topic matter, but uh, any books that you've read in the last year or two that you would like to share with the audience or are reading, because I know some of us peck around at books but maybe never finish them. I think that the reason it's so hard for me is I read a minimum of an hour for, for pleasure every day of my life, no matter where I am. I'm that person that you see where I'm standing in the line at the airport and I've got my book out and I'm flipping through pages. And so, for me, it's a couple books a week on a slow week. So trying to find two. But I have been working through themes. So a recent theme was experiences of kids in wartime. Yeah. And not light reading, so I had to put it in between my Jack Reacher novels and, you know, the murder mysteries. But the girl, the girl who smiled beads, uh, Clementine, I always butcher her name, Mara... Wamaria, um, the girl who smiled small bees, and then Anthony Doerr's All the Light That We Can See. So Clementine's book is a first-person account uh, of her struggle in the Rwanda atrocities. She was six. Devastating, devastating. Anthony Doerr's book is a fictional account of a German boy and a French girl in World War II. But both of these bring home, yes, we say children are resilient, but the ways in which war and extreme circumstances really scar and amputate children emotionally and how people are able to then fight and regain their humanity after all of that. So it was both of them struggling to become people again. And Clementine's story is a story of just real um, victory over that. The Anthony Dower's book had the bittersweet ending, one dies, um, the, the, the core girl stays alive, but it is that whole thing that we, with all the wars and everything that's happening today, we occasionally see the photographs of children but that there are too many children behind the scenes that no one really is paying attention to. And I know that's really deep and kind of sad, but 
I cried in between, but then it was happy endings because they all came out okay. Well, and it's reality, and that's okay to be deep, right? And especially leading up to this last question, which is supposed to be fun, right? So I know that last question was supposed we, to be fun. We go from heavier stuff. to you know to I mean lighter to heavier to to light. Uh, and this last one you said, and this is the one that a lot of people struggle with, which is really the funny part, is the proverbial, you know, you're stranded on a deserted island. You could take one album with you, um, ideally not a greatest hits. Which album would it be and why? Stevie Wonder, Songs in the Key of Life. And I didn't even have to think about that one for a single minute. And so I consume a lot of music, not a musician by training, but my son's a musician, so he gives me playlists. So I'm, you know, au courant. But that album, first of all, I love the backstory. Stevie had decided to leave music. And this, he was offered this opportunity to have carte blanche and a massive amount of funding to do anything he wanted on an album. And Stevie Wonder is prolific and he's done amazing things. But in one album, I made a list, 17 songs and 11 of them I love, like just absolutely love. And he's crammed in like 20 different musicians. But you go from the happy giddy songs, isn't she lovely, um, to the really deep songs, like, you know, Village Ghetto Land and Love's in Need of Love. And then you get through like the experimental songs, like Contusion. And then you get to the celebration of music history, like Sir Duke. And so, yeah, it's, you got to stop me because I could talk about this album forever. But it is amazing that one person, he touches so many genres and so many themes, and you go, how can one person be that brilliant? And I got to see him live at Dreamforce, and then at um, CES a couple years ago, I was standing next to him in the Sennheiser booth because he was checking out their newest headphones. It was like, wow. So, yeah. Well, it's an awesome choice and actually maybe one of the best explanations of why you picked it. So thank you. And he is great. I did have the pleasure. I think it was three or four years ago seeing him at Bottle Rock for the first time. I've seen a lot of people play and he was one of those, you know, uh, bucket list kind of people. I miss Prince, unfortunately, right before that. So um, I've so said <clears throat> I vowed anybody like that that I feel like I need to see. Like I'm going to try to see Queen this summer, even though, unfortunately, without you know the masterful Freddie Mercury. Um, but anyway, um, this is where we'll wrap up. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O, host of the What's to Know podcast. I've really, and I say this a lot, but I truly mean this this time, spent the last half hour with Dr. CK Andrade. Uh, she is the Director of Product Management for the Health Suite digital platform at Philips. Thank you so much, CK. Thanks for having me. It's been a treat. It really has. Thank you. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.